If you've ever looked at any books or websites about the Phoenicians, you've probably noticed that they all have one thing in common. And that thing is purple. Whether it's the front cover of the book or the colour of the text, no colour is more associated with the Phoenicians than the colour purple. But why is that? If you listened to the last episode of the podcast, you'll have heard us talking about just how many different products the Phoenicians traded. Everything from raw materials to livestock, finished products to services. But the purple dye was on a different level. It was the Phoenicians' most valuable export. But it also, quite rightly, came to define their legacy and their identity. In June 2019, I was in Carthage, Tunisia, and I was lucky enough to meet a man who was single-handedly reviving the practice of making purple dye, the ancient way. Sure, uh, so my name is Mohamed Ghassan Nuira. In Arabic, it's Mohamed Ghassan Nuira. As far as I'm aware, no person alive today does what he does or has the knowledge that he does about making purple dye. Uh, I'm, a, I'm, a, I'm 40 year, years old and um, I'm a, uh, an operations manager in a market research company. I'm a father of three and um, I'm happily married. Making purple dye the Phoenician way is complicated. In fact, it's so complicated that the Phoenicians and Carthaginians monopolized the industry for centuries. In my recent interview with Ghassan, I had so many questions. I wanted to find out what made this dye so valuable. And how did Ghassan learn how to make it? However, I actually ended up finding out a whole lot more. Not just about the dye, but about how one man became obsessed with this ancient practice. And how it changed his life in some rather unexpected ways. My name is Charlie Mannix Beal, and welcome to episode three of the Phoenicians Before Columbus podcast. Each week, I take a fresh look at the history, culture, and achievements of the ancient Phoenicians. With experts, enthusiasts, and modern day Phoenicians, help me to uncover the wonder and wisdom of one of history's greatest but most forgotten about civilizations. This podcast is part one of my two-part interview with Mohamed Ghassan Nouria. He is a man who has single-handedly revived the tradition of making purple dye using the Murex sea snail. To me, Ghassan, you're someone who has encyclopedic knowledge of Carthaginian history, and in fact, history in general. Is it something that's always interested you? No, I, I never was. Uh, by the way, I hated history when I was a teenager. Um, I know I, I thought of history like a fantasy world that has nothing to do with reality. But uh, my my perception of history changed when I was fourteen in history class. Um, uh, when we were learning about the Phoenician culture and one of the uh, main sources of wealth of the Phoenicians, which was a, a staggeringly expensive dye, purple dye, that they uh, produced from uh, a certain uh, a variety of, of sea snails. Uh, but at that point, something just struck me, and uh, 
I thought, well, that's impossible. The teacher is just saying this to, to make her course look more interesting. Uh, it's impossible that we can produce something more expensive than gold from these uh, uh, sticky snails. And for, for that, for some reason, this just uh, was stuck in my mind for several years. And I kept thinking about these Phoenicians and this dye and these snails and the relations, etc., and the relation between them, etc. But I was still not interested in history whatsoever. Uh, it wasn't until several years later when I had the, the chance to really manipulate and work on, on this, on this, uh, on this uh, dye uh, that I, I really started to, to become interested in learning more about those mysterious people. And then, uh, of course, through the Phoenicians, I started learning more about Carthage, uh, what Carthage really was. And uh, it really became like a source of pride to me. And it really helped me to, to learn more about my roots, my identity, my culture, my heritage, etc. So this is where, how I really became interested in history. It was through this legendary purple dye. So at 14 years old, you had this first revelation that the Phoenician purple dye was more valuable than gold. How important was this purple dye to the Phoenicians and, and how has it come to shape their identity? All right. Okay, so purple dye was, of course, uh, uh, one of the main sources of wealth for the Phoenicians. The origin of purple dye is quite controversial. Some historians uh, I like argue that it was the Minoans in Crete who first discovered it. Uh, many others believe it was the Tyrans from Tyre, the Phoenicians, of course, who discovered it first. There were traces of purple dye in Crete dating back to the 18th, 17th, and 18th century BC, and traces of purple dye dating back to the same period in in, in today's Lebanon in, in, in ancient Phoenicia. So, anyway, this. Purple dye became the absolute symbol of power and ability in the ancient world and became very, very much connected with the Phoenicians precisely. Uh, by the way, the Phoenicians have never called themselves Phoenicians. They've always called themselves Canaanites. But it was the Greeks who called them Phoenicians because of their master of this legendary dye. Phoenician derives from the Greek name Phoeniki, which means red-purple in Greek. So they were so tremendously famous about this uh, purple dye that the Greeks decided to call them Phoenicians or the purple people. Many of us already know the legend behind its discovery. Legend has it that the king of Tyre, Milkart, was having a walk on, on the beach in Tyre one day with his nymph Turas. And uh, at some point, the dog found, came across some Murex snails craw crawling back to the sea. So he, took, he cracked one of them, and when he came back to Milkart, he noticed this red, vibrant, red-purple color on his muscle. And um, Europa, uh, Milkart companion, loved this color and asked Milkart, to, uh, to figure out how, it's, how it was made and uh, to offer her a, a purple uh, garment uh, dyed in this uh, purple color. So this is how they, he, he followed his dog's tracks. He found out from where the dye was produced. He managed to produce it and uh, etc. So this is, how, you know, according to the Phoenician legend, this is how purple dye has been produced, uh, has been discovered in the first place. And uh, many Tyrian coins depict the either the uh, Murex shells or the industry of purple or the legend behind its discovery. We have one of the most famous of these coins is a, a second century BC Tyran 
uh, shekel uh, that clearly uh, shows the uh, the uh, Melkar dog a bite in the Murak shell. Uh, we have uh, a variety of other coins as well with what that very clearly show a Murak shells uh, either with a fly um, as a reminder of the horrendous smell that came from these uh, uh, massive purple dye and solutions uh, or just um, an illustration of Burek's shell on, on the coins. So yeah, purple dye had a tremendous uh, importance for the Phoenician culture and economy, and they they also claimed that they have they were the the first people who discovered the dye. So it has it had a tremendous importance for the for the Tyrians, for the Phoenicians, and they kept looking for the Muraks wherever they went, because that was a source of tremendous wealth for them. This dye was more expensive than gold, like 10 to 15 times more expensive than gold. And the Phoenicians wanted it all for themselves. So for several centuries, they were the main producers of, the, of this dye, and they managed over the centuries to improve the techniques and left until they reached that deep red-purple color that was so sought after in antiquity, and that made the... Phoenicians tremendously rich and, and famous. So because of all of this, and because of all of these uh, uh, great and unique characteristics of the dye, the Phoenicians really became very, very much attached to this dye, and, uh, and uh, it became part of their culture. It even had some religious significance uh, for them and for the cultures that, that, uh, that followed them. Of course, the Carthaginians as well, later on. And who exactly was buying all this dye? Well, basically all those who could afford it. It was very, very expensive. So you can you can imagine that very, very few people could have the means to get it. Uh, during the Phoenician and Carthaginian times, the Phoenicians were only more concerned making money, as much money as possible. So they would sell it to everyone who could afford buying it. Uh, but... Little by little, it became the symbol of royalty, of nobility, of power. So it, it really became like a luxury item that was reserved to the royal family, to the kings and queens and princes and uh, and um, and senators, etc. So it really became um, a symbol of, of power. And uh, at some point during the Roman Empire, the the wearing of purple or even selling it was punishable by death. By the way, during the the uh, the reign of King Nero, only the king and those who were very close to the king were able to get access to this luxury item. Nobody else had the right to. And there's also another crazy story about how obsessed the Romans became about this die. Was you know during the reign of Caligula, he had the king of uh, the Moors, Ptolemy, killed. Because he dared wear a sumptuous purple cloak during a gladiator, gladiator fight. So he had him killed out of jealousy. It was, you know, it was something that was, it became the symbol of eternity and it was only reserved to the king. So everybody else who would dare wearing it would, 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 would put his life uh, at serious risk. And I guess... And I guess I guess purple's associated with royalty to this day. It's still very much the case today, of course, yes. <laughs> so what do we know about the Phoenicians' way of working with this dye? How did they extract it? How did they produce the colour? And is there any archaeological evidence of this? The Phoenicians left very little uh, written texts, uh, mainly because the Romans uh, destroyed uh, their cities 
and uh, and rebuilt their their cities uh, on the ruins of the Venetian cities. So very very little has been recovered so far. And of course, um, uh, the Phoenici the the making of the purple dye was one of antiquity's best kept secrets because it was a source of so much money and so much wealth that the Phoenicians wouldn't risk. Uh, having their recipe or process being stolen by anybody. So it was something that was reserved to a very small circle of dyers and skilled uh, uh, dyers, and they wouldn't g give out their secrets for nothing in this world. But later on, of course, the Romans took the uh, inherited the process from, from, the, from the Phoenicians and Carthaginians. So in, in ancient Phoenician times, uh, we, uh, we have found a lot of traces in Sidon, Tyre, and many other uh, Phoenician cities around the Mediterranean uh, with large uh, uh, basins, uh, fermentation basins, where the dye was prepared with a huge uh, um, uh, uh, mounds of, of uh, crushed Murex, Murex shells precisely inside them, where in the, uh, in the 17th century AD, uh, some archaeologists recovered what they would call later on the Murex Hill, which was a huge mound entirely made of Murex shells that was over 20 meters high and more than uh, 18 meters large. So uh, this is just one of the of the Murex mounds that were found there. Uh, we have also found uh, a tremendous amount of Murex fragments here in Tunisia, the city of Jerba. So yes, there are still a lot of traces of this industry in many uh, Phoenician and Carthaginian cities and Roman cities all over the Mediterranean. Uh, as I said, uh, the we don't have any trace of the um, genuine Phoenician process. But uh, Pliny the Elder, who was uh, a Roman his, uh, historian of the second century, he tried to describe in uh, his Encyclopedia of Natural Science what he believes was the, uh, the process of making uh, a purple dye. Uh, so I can read a, a short passage uh, for you uh, uh, from the Encyclopedia of Natural Science of Pliny the Elder. So wh where he says that the proportions of the blend are as follows. For 50 pounds of wool, 200 pounds of buccanum juice, and 110 pounds of pelagia juice, from this mixture is produced the admirable and highly valued amethyst color. To produce a Tyrian purple, also called as blada or oxyblada, which was the most valued of all. The wool is first soaked in the raw pelagium juice and finished by dipping it again in the juice of buccanum. The resultant color is that of clotted blood, blackish with an, with an iridescent shine when held up, up into the light. The dye is cooked in lead vessels where 104, or about 1944 liters, must be reduced to 500 pounds using moderate heat. The buccanum should not be used alone. The dye it gives does not adhere to the fiber. But mixed with pelagium, it takes very well the mordant and gives to its very dark shade the brightness of scarlet. So these are just small, short passages from the uh, Encyclopedia of Natural Science from Pliny the Elder. So this is, of course, during Roman times. He, he had just observed the process and tried to collect as many details as possible as he saw it. But of course, the dyers wouldn't give up, give up, give him all of, of their secrets, so as they wanted it all for themselves. Uh, so the Phoenicians would harvest huge amounts of these murex shells. That were three varieties: the Exaplex trunculus, Bolinus brandaris, and Thaisa mastoma. And each of these snails would give different color. 
two of them are quite similar in color, and the other one is, is, is quite different. And they would blend the juices from all of these uh, shells, uh, snails, in specific proportions to get the most highly prized color of all, which is Tyrian purple, uh, a, a very deep red-purple color. So they would uh, gather all of these hundreds and hundreds of pounds of fresh snails, and they would put them in large uh, basins near the shoreline, uh, chiseled in the rock. Uh, they would keep them in seawater alive until they gather enough murex uh, snails. Once they get enough, they would start crushing them one by one until they uh, um, expose what we call the hypobranchial gland, which is a small a part of the animal that produces what we call the precursor of the dye, or a colorless liquid in the beginning that turns purple when it's exposed to the elements. So they would uh, uh, extract this, this gland, one from each snail separately, until they gather them, they process uh, all of the, the snails that they had, and then they would gather all of this dye stuff in uh, another fermentation basin. Uh, they would keep it there for three days. They would add salt to help uh, uh, extract all of the liquid and juices. And at the end of the three days, they would end up having a very deep and blackish, purplish uh, um, liquid, very concentrated. At that point, they would transfer this liquid to large tin vessels, which they keep near a furnace, a distant furnace, so that the liquid would be heated steadily for several days, between 8 and 10 days, at very moderate heat. Not too hot and not too cold. It has to be like around 50 to 60 degrees Celsius all over this period. And they would add other substances, other mordants, other reducing agents, and they would monitor the dye for several days. Like there was a day shift and a night shift. Like you, you can never leave the dye alone. You would always have to monitor the temperature, to, to, to taste it, to smell it, etc. It was like a huge work. And at the end of the, of the 10 days of the fermentation process, once the dye is reduced back to a soluble form, it would look like yellowish or greenish liquid. Then they would dip the fabric, either wool or lined linen or, or silk, etc., and they would take it out. And at that point, when it's exposed to the air and the light, the color starts to develop. So if they are satisfied with the, with the result, they would put the rest of the fabrics inside to dye it. But if they're not, they would continue the cooking until they reach the degree of concentration that they they were looking for. Uh, so that's in general, in, in just a quick few words, how the the ancients used to extract the dye and to prepare it before applying it to the to, to the fabric. But today, of course, we have uh, new methods that could make this uh, this uh, uh, um, process a lot quicker. Uh, but of course, the old-fashioned uh, fermentation vat always has its charm and its and its magic. What happened to the practice of making purple dye then? Obviously, at some point it stopped. Why did it stop? And and when and where was the last center of production for for Murex purple dye? Turian purple or royal purple or imperial purple or whatever you want to call it is one of the uh, history's 
oldest dyes. Uh, it's been continuously produced from 4000 BC up until the 13th century AD. So for about 3,400 or, or 3,500 years. Uh, uh, it's been produced during the Phoenician era, Carthaginian era, Roman, Byzantine, Greeks, and many other cultures produced it as well uh, all over this time span. Uh, but at some point, there was a problem with the dye because after thousands of years of over-harvesting, uh, so uh, at around the second and third century AD, after 2,000 years of production, the murex snails became very scarce at some at some point in, in in some areas of the Mediterranean. So the dye became more and more rare, and uh, and because of political restrictions, especially during the uh, the Roman era, uh, this became really restricted to a very few people uh, that could enjoy it in the Roman Empire. Uh, and so people started to because the, the hues produced uh, from uh, the the murex snails were so vibrant and so beautiful that people have gotten used to them. So they started looking for other alternatives, cheaper alternatives like uh, from um, lichens and, uh, and other types of vegetable dyes that would give more or less the same the same result. So people started shifting to other to other less expensive dyes and more available dyes. Uh, little by little, the production of purple dye has uh, has been started to you know to to be reduced and uh until the 13th century uh ad like 14 no 14 sorry so 1453 which marks the fall of constantinople that was the last center of production of royal purple in, in known history so after the fall of constantinople the, the arabs were not very much interested in in, in purple because their color was green and it was a great thing by the way because if purple dye has continuously been produced uh, since that time to this day or, or to the last century I, I'm not sure if we would be able to find any murex shell alive in, in the whole Mediterranean so uh, it was a good thing uh, it was the opportunity for the uh, murex population to regenerate because it was it became at the brink of extinction at some mm. point. So the last center of production was in Constantinople, and uh, it completely came to a halt uh, in the year 1453 after the Arab conquest. So the Murex sea snail population had 600 years in which to recover their numbers. Uh, and then you came along and started experimenting with purple dye. But how did you initially get into it? How did you come to start making purple dye yourself? Well, uh, looking back to that uh, revelation that I had in history class in 1993 when I was just 14, as I told you, something just it just struck me. Uh, I kept thinking of it like uh, for several years, but I had no clue at the time. Nobody could answer my questions. And for, for the longest time, I really thought that the teacher, she was just telling us something that was not real. Uh, until uh, 2007, I was just uh, wandering off on the on, on a beach in Carthage, and uh, it was September 2007, so about 14 years later, I, if my calculations are correct, and um, there was a storm the previous night, and there were all kinds of jellyfish and, and seaweeds and, and sea snails and small crabs, etc., uh, littering the, the beach. And at some point, I came across this 
a, a dead murex shell snail. I didn't know it was murex at, at that time. And uh, there was a drill in its shell, and there was this gorgeous color. And uh, the, the sun was, uh, you know, under the effect of the sun or something. I wasn't sure how the color developed at that time. Uh, but this beautiful and vibrant red-purple color really struck me. And once I saw it, I immediately had this flashback to 14 years ago. I, I, was, I said, okay, this is it. This is what the teacher was talking about in history class 14 years ago. So I just took the snail and took it to the nearest harbor and asked the fishermen what it is. So they told me it was quite abundant in some areas, less abundant than others, uh, and that they could give me it could bring me some live specimens. So I asked them to bring me like a pound or, or so. And this is how I started like experimenting in my apartment. Uh, of course, I had no idea whatsoever where the dye came from exactly because uh, it was completely new for me. So I, I just started crushing. I knew from from what I, the very little text that I've read that you had to crush the, sna the snail. I didn't know where exactly the dye came from. So I started crushing here and there and nothing happened. So I was very frustrated and I took the, the snails, put them in a, a, a bag and, and just, I was intending to, to throw them to the, in, in the garbage like the following day. Um, and then the following day, for some reason, I, before dumping the uh, the shells, I just opened the bag, and it was all purple. So I was like, wow, what the hell did happen during that night? Because at that time, I didn't realize that it, it took quite some time for the for the color to develop once it's exposed to the to the sun. And when I did my first experiments the, the previous evening, I, I was doing it in the shade, like it was... It was nighttime, so uh, the color uh, took more time to develop because it was not exposed to the sun. Uh, anyway, but well, the color develops anyway, uh, even if it's just exposed to the air, but it takes more time. Uh, when I saw this color, I said, well, something must have happened uh, during the night, and uh, I just took a closer look. I managed to, to figure out where, where in the shell, where, where in the mollusk, the, the, the purple color was, was the deeper. Uh, was the, was the deepest, and this is how I realized that it came from a small piece of flesh inside the, the gland, that, that inside the shell. So once I realized where the color really came from, um, uh, finally I had a clue, and uh, I started experimenting, uh, I, like uh, getting more fresh uh, snails uh, every weekend, and started experimenting. Uh, this is how it all started, by the way. So it took me like two years uh, to produce my first pigment, which was quite dusty and, uh, and, and dirty, etc. But I, I'm still keeping a very small sample of that first pigment because I'm very proud of it because that's my first pigment ever. And then I started like improving the technique uh, year after year and discovering new uh, hues and new colors. Uh, year after year, and now I have a collection of uh, of several colors, several hues of pigments uh, coming from different types of of, uh, of mullahs. So this is how it all started, and uh, this is how I really started like experimenting. Uh, physically with, with, with purple dye. I'm imagining that the process is a very sensory experience. What's it like to work with the murex and, and make the purple dye? First, first of all, we need to, to get the, the fresh uh, the murex from the, um, from the fishermen, of course. So then I'll have to support them, like the, the, the bigger ones, the smaller ones. Uh, and then 
clean them because they're muddy, they're dirty, they're, they bury themselves in the sun. So you can imagine how dirty they can get. They have to be cleaned. Otherwise, when you crush them and extract the gland, part of this mud and part of this dirt can get mixed with the with, with the dye precursor, and then you will have really have a hard time to, to clean it up. So I I brush them. I I just wash them um, thoroughly uh, before using them, and then I start crushing the the shells one by one until the, I expose the hypobranchial gland, which is a small like uh, a piece of white flesh. Uh, and each uh, gland contains very few drops, what we call the precursor of the dye, which is the colorless liquid in the beginning, that after the exposure to the sun and the air, it starts to oxidize and the color starts to develop. So I take these glands one by one and then coat them in salt and let them leave them to dry in the dark or in the sun, depending on the, the color that you want to achieve at the, uh, at the end. If you expose them to the, to the sun, uh, you're more likely to get blue colors. If you want to really preserve the reddish shade or the reddish hues, you really, you, you, it's, very, it's very, really recommended to dry them in the dark. Uh, so this is uh, what should be done if you just want dry glands for future use. But the most excruciating part of the job is when you want to produce pure pigment. Uh, and this is really like painstakingly slow. It's, uh, it's excruciating because you'll have to either ferment these glands in a, in a solution of alcohol uh, for a few days so that the colorant will be separated from the flesh, or scrape the fresh glands one by one and separate the, the colorant manually, which takes a lot, a lot of time. So generally speaking, it takes me about 70 kilograms of fresh snails to, to produce a little bit more of one gram of more or less clean pigment and uh, about two days of work. One to two days of work, just to give you an idea how excruciating this is. Um, then once you get your uh, your colorant, you have to spread it on a, um, a glass sheet uh, so that it won't get absorbed. Because if you if you spread it on on some type of uh, uh, wood or or even uh, on your counter, it, some of the colorant can be absorbed by, by that surface. So you really have to spread it on some glass uh, surface uh, and leave it to dry uh, for several days. Then you have to grind it into a fine powder and keep uh, plucking out or cleaning it from all of these uh, impurities and small shell fragments, etc. So it's really a very excruciating task. It's not at all easy. Generally speaking, it takes me about 70 kilograms of fresh snails to produce a little bit more than one gram of pure, more or less pure pigment and about one or two days of, of work. So it's quite excruciating, as you can imagine, and um, very time-consuming. Uh, then once it's dried in the dark, I just have to grind it into a fine powder and then pluck out any impurities or small fragments of shells or, or anything that, that wasn't cleaned uh, previously uh, until you have a more or less pure pigment. You know, in organic or natural pigment, we, we can never talk of 100% pure pigment. There's always some, some sort of small amount of impurities inside, but 
the final result is a very concentrated pigment that can be very, very good for dyeing. And uh, the good thing about Mirax dyes is that it doesn't require any mordant or any fixative uh, substances for the dye to adhere to the fibers. You will just have to ferment your pigments properly or, or your dried glands properly and, uh, and uh, soak your fabrics inside. No need for any fixatives, no need for any mordant, which is something that is quite specific to Mirax dye. And the good thing about it also is that all of the parts of the, of the animal are, can be used. You, you just don't use the glands or you just don't extract the gland or the dye and then discard the rest of the animal. Um, as a matter of fact, you can eat the flesh. It's very delicious and, and very healthy, by the way. Uh, just, you can just prepare them just the way you prepare your clams or mussels. It's, it's very satisfying. Uh, the shells themselves can be burned in uh, uh, big pottery furnaces at 1,000 degrees Celsius and then ground into a fine powder to produce a very uh, uh, high-quality uh, lime, which can be either, either used like in construction or used to produce uh, other products that can, that can be derived from racks like Pepperosum, which is a purple paint that can, uh, that can also be produced from uh, the glands and secretions. You, you can take the slime and, 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 uh, and mix it with fresh glands again until you get this purplish paste that you can use as a paint. And then you can, you can also uh, use the, the slime uh, as a base or uh, as a substitute to soda in your dye bath. So you can put it back in the dye bath, uh, uh, and this will replace soda. It's a very basic lime, about a pH of 14, so it's a very strong uh, alkali that I can use again in my fermentation bath. The intestines or the, the insides of the of the of the of the animal, like the parts that are edible, can also be fermented to produce uh, a very very delicious fish sauce, like oyster sauce. Uh, the shells can also be used as fertilizers in, in your garden. It's, uh, it's packed with nutrients, with calcium. It's, it's very good for, for acid soils. So at the end of the day, you can, you, you can have six or seven different uses of this animal, and, uh, and it's incredible. Like Nothing is wasted, and I'm sure that the ancients have figured out uh, all of these characteristics of Mirax and and took full benefit of uh, of it, uh, you know, like they they should have uh, eaten eaten the, the the meat and and used the shell in all kinds of different uses and 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 made purple and made dye and paint out of, out of the glands. It's uh, I am sure that they figured out uh, all of these characteristics and and used it uh, to their advantage. So it's um, it's really a very satisfying feeling when you know that. You will just not waste the uh, an animal like that. Just use the dye and waste the rest of the animal. You will you will just benefit from every part of it, and nothing really is wasted. Everything is recycled. Thanks again for listening, and I hope you enjoyed my conversation with Mohammed Ghassan Nouria. That's just part one. Make sure you come back next week for part two where we're going to be talking about all things purple dye and how Ghassan's dad saved his marriage and how he's inspiring the next generation of Carthaginian historians. 
As always, if you've enjoyed the podcast, please do me a favor and give it five stars and a great review on Apple Podcasts or wherever you happen to be listening. 